Well, we're often told to trust in Jesus to save us. He died on the cross, we are told, to pay for your sins. And so we're urged, put your faith in him firmly as your Savior and your King. Trust him and him alone to save you from sin and death and hell, for he will never, never, never let you down. But how do you know if you can trust Jesus? How do you know if you should believe him? And if you do believe him, how do you know for sure that you're right to do that and you're right to urge other people to do that as well? If you're going to trust Jesus and urge others to do that, then, well, you'll need to know that he wants to save you and that he's able to save you, that he's competent. And to know if he's really competent to save, you need to know who he really is. And that's been the theme, isn't it, from the first half of Mark's gospel as we've been looking through. Who is Jesus? Who is he? Uh, Last week, at the beginning of Mark 6, we saw people in Jesus' own hometown rejecting him. They thought of him in purely human terms. Uh, They knew his family, they knew his work as a carpenter, they knew him from a worldly point of view, and they refused to accept that he was more than that. So they rejected the ministry of Jesus. And there was little that he could do in that place in terms of miraculous healing. They are a picture of unbelief. At the end of chapter 6, in verse 56 later, we will see his reception in another place, Gennesaret. And here people will trust him. In fact, they'll run around the whole region spreading spreading the message about him and bringing the sick to him. And wherever he goes, they're going to bring, 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 bring people and they'll heal them. uh, And anyone who touches him will be healed. And there's going to be amazing things happening there. That is a picture of faith. Now, in between these two accounts, Mark gives us a number of other stories. And we saw two of them last week. We saw how Jesus sent out his 12 apostles, gave them authority to do similar things that he was doing, multiplying his ministry in the area. They were proclaiming that people should repent, casting out demons, healing the sick. And then we saw the news about how the news of all this came back to King Herod. And when he heard about the impact that Jesus and his apostles were having, you remember? He also started pondering on the question, who is Jesus? And some people told him that he was Elijah or one of the prophets who came after him. Herod's guilty conscience made him think he was John because Herod, you remember, had ordered the execution of John the Baptist to save his own face at his birthday party. Uh, and he read about in that incident last week in a, in a flashback. And we saw that Herod was an evil king who was given a chance to repent, but didn't. And his guilty conscience led him to the wrong conclusion about Jesus. And so we come to our passage today, and the apostles come back from their mission. They return to Jesus in verse 30. They tell him all that they've done. And look how Jesus responds in verse 31. He says, Come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while. Come away to a desolate place and rest a while. And the reason it goes on, for many were coming and going and they had no leisure even to eat. Now notice two things here. They were busy. And rightly so. Ministry is busy. The gospel is important. 
It's perfectly normal as gospel people to be busy with gospel work. Jesus and his disciples couldn't even find time to eat. That's the first thing. But the second thing is also important. Jesus said, it's time to take a rest. He cared enough for people to go all out to reach him, right? even skipping meals to do that. He cared enough for his disciples to tell them to come away with him for a rest. That too should be part of ministry. Not just one side, but both sides. Uh, anyone who knows Don Carson uh, will know that he works very, very hard. I know that because he's been here a number of times with KVBC and I've seen him in action firsthand. He's like a machine, right? But listen to what he's written about sleep. This is what he said. Doubt may be fostered by sleep deprivation. If you keep burning the candle at both ends, sooner or later you will indulge in more and more mean cynicism, and the line between cynicism and doubt is a very thin one. Of course, different individuals require different numbers of hours of sleep. Moreover, some cope with a bit of tiredness better than others. Nevertheless, if you are among those who become nasty, cynical, or even full of doubt when you are missing your sleep, you are morally obligated to try and get the sleep you need. We are whole, complicated beings. Our physical existence is tied to our spiritual well-being, to our mental outlook, to our relationships with others, including our relationship with God. Sometimes the godliest thing you can do in the universe is get a good night's sleep. Not pray all night, but sleep. I'm certainly not denying that there may be a place for praying all night. I'm merely insisting that in the normal course of things, spiritual discipline obligates you to get the sleep your body needs. So Jesus calls his disciples away from the crowds for a rest. And so in verse 32, they go along in a boat to a desolate place by themselves. They're probably taking it easy, right? Just going slowly in the boat, crossing at a relaxed pace for their break. And where they're heading to is a different part of that big lake about which all these towns are situated. We call it the, they call them the Sea of Galilee. Now here's the problem. People see what they're doing and they work out where they're heading and they literally run ahead of them on foot. Right, around the other side. And so when they get to the shore in verse 34, there is a great crowd there to meet them. And how does Jesus respond? Look at verse 34. When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd and he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. They were like sheep without a shepherd. Lots of passages in the Old Testament talk about sheep without a shepherd. Uh, Moses asked God in, in Numbers 27 uh, to appoint a successor for him uh, so that the people of Israel, the congregation of the Lord, may not be as sheep that have no shepherd. Uh, in 1 Kings 22, uh, when the prophet uh, Micaiah was prophesying the death of the, the, the king of Israel, uh, uh, in a battle that was just about to happen. Uh, he said to him, I saw Israel scattered on the mountains as sheep 
that have no shepherd. It's not say, doesn't say the king, oh, king, king, you're going to die. He just say, I see them like sheep with no shepherd. Then he knows lah, what he means. In Ezekiel 34, our Old Testament reading, God had been speaking against the shepherds of Israel, the leaders of the people at that time, because instead of feeding the sheep, they slaughtered them. Uh, they ruled them with, with force and harshness. And so he says in verse 5, and so they were scattered because, because there was no shepherd. And they became food for all the wild beasts. And, but you remember our reading, God promised them that one day he would come and rescue them. And at one point he said that, that he would be their shepherd. At another point he said that King David would be their shepherd. And of course we know both are the same thing, right? Because in Jesus, he is both the promised descendant of David, the one whom David points to, uh, and he is God himself. Uh, but thinking about our passage, remember King Herod, he was a terrible shepherd of Israel, wasn't he? Just concerned for himself and his reputation and his recent behavior has shown it. And then, here in contrast, stands Jesus, the true king. The king that's been secretly anointed by God already, though it's not really meant to be public yet. And he shows the heart of a good shepherd who really cares for his people. And so even though he and his disciples deserve a break, he doesn't scold the people who come to him. He doesn't say, okay, let's turn the boat around and we'll go back the other way. Uh, get away from them. Right, at this point, the loving thing to do is to defer that needed rest. He has compassion on the people because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And so in his kindness and compassion, he shepherds them. He is the real king whom God has promised his people. Brothers and sisters, aren't you glad to have Jesus as your king? Aren't you glad that he is your good shepherd? And isn't it wonderful to know that he has a heart of compassion and that he really, really, really cares for you? So how does Jesus shepherd his people? Well, the end of verse 34, he says, and he began to teach them many things. Right? The primary way in which he exercises his shepherdly function is by teaching them. He feeds them with his word. And that's uh, that's the, way, the main shepherdly, or another word to use, pastoral, same thing, function. Okay? And even today, the main way a pastor or leader shepherds the flock entrusted to them by God is by teaching them God's word, isn't it? Right? doesn't mean it's the only thing we do, uh, but it's the primary thing. Whether it's publicly or privately, formally or informally, whether it's at church or at home, in the coffee shop or in the hospital, right? the main way to, to, to show pastoral care, whether you're a pastor, you're a growth group leader, or, or you're just a friend who's, who, who's seeking to shepherd each other, right? lovingly bring God's word to bear on the lives of God's people. Uh, and so here's Jesus teaching the crowds. And he's teaching them, and he's teaching them. And now it's getting a bit late. And the disciples, like their master, are concerned for the people. Uh, and so they come to Jesus in verse 35, and they say to him, This is a desolate place, and the hour is now late. Send them away 
to go into the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. Right? It's a bit like sometimes when you're doing Bible study, you're having a meeting, and someone will give a broad hint. Oh, Andrew, we kind of like need to be wrapping up soon because people need to go home. Right? Oh, okay. Uh, 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 disciples are, are being thoughtful here. Uh, they're concerned for the people they're serving. Uh, and that's always got to be the case for us too, isn't it? As we, as we follow Jesus, we seek to, to seek the good of those whom we serve uh, with the gospel of the Lord. Uh, people are never just numbers or statistics. Right? Numbers, numbers are important. Mark's going to give us numbers at the end of it. Yes, statistics are there. But for each figure that goes into a statistic is a person. A person whom Jesus loves and that we are to love as well. And so the disciples make this very reasonable suggestion. Wrap up now so that people can go into the village and buy some food before it gets late. And Jesus responds in verse 37, you give them something to eat. <laughs> How did, that seems like a pretty impossible task, isn't it? And so they say, shall we go and buy 200 denarii worth of bread and, and give it to them to eat? Right? It's like saying, shall we go and buy 40,000 ringgit worth of food for this meal. And even if we have the money, where are we going to get the supply? Because Alex from Oriental Catering was not going to be established for another 2,000 years. And Jesus says to them in verse 38, how many loaves do you have? Go and see. So they come back with the answer, five and two fish. So he tells the people to sit group by group on the green grass. Maybe that the eyewitnesses especially remember the green of the grass because, well, that would have been unusual in, the, in that kind of desolate place. Maybe it's a hint of the time when the Messiah was going to come and the desert will bloom. But anyway, the people sit down in groups of hundreds and fifties and, and Jesus takes those five loaves and two fish. He looks up to heaven and says a blessing, giving, giving thanks to God for his provision. And then he breaks the loaves he gives it to his disciples to set before the people. He divides the two fish among them. And then look at the outcome in verse 42. And they all ate and were satisfied. They all ate and were satisfied. In a culture where people didn't necessarily know where the next meal was coming from, this was a big thing. But not only did they eat their fill, verse 43... They took up 12 baskets full of broken pieces and the fish. Right, Jesus told the disciples to feed the crowd, and now he had made it possible for them to do it. Not only that, have leftovers. Picture of abundance. And now Mark tells us how big this miracle was in terms of numbers. Verse 44, and those who ate the loaves were 5,000 men. What an amazing miracle. But this is not the first feeding miracle in the Bible. Remember how some people were telling Herod that maybe Jesus was Elijah? Well, Elijah had a successor whose name was Elisha. Uh, Elisha was given a double portion uh, of Elijah's spirit. Presumably that means he's twice as great as Elijah. Now look at 2 Kings uh, chapter 4, verse 42 to 44 on the screen. Right? It says, a man came from Baal, Shalisha, bringing the man of God bread of the first fruits, 20 loaves of barley and fresh ears of grain in a sack. Elisha said, give it to the men that they may eat. 
But his servant said, how can I set this before a hundred men? Uh, so he repeated, give it to all the men that they may eat. For thus says the Lord, they shall eat and have some left. He set it before them and they ate and had some left according to the word of the Lord. Right, do you see the similarity between this and the feeding of Jesus? But do you also see the difference? Well, the similarity is a big number of people with a small amount of food and some left over. But look at the difference. Elisha fed a hundred people with 20 loaves. Jesus fed more than 5,000 with five loaves and 12 baskets left over. What does that show? Well, at the very least, it shows that he is greater than Elisha. And since Elisha is greater than Elijah, Herod's advisors have underestimated Jesus. Jesus is greater than Elijah. And if John was the promised Elijah figure, then Jesus is greater than John as well. Herod's view of Jesus is too small. So maybe we should be looking at something bigger to understand the miracle of Jesus. Maybe we should remember how God miraculously fed his people, Israel, when they were coming out of Egypt. You remember? 1,500 years before all this happened, God had rescued his people from slavery in Egypt and was taking them to the promised land, but he took them through the desert on the way. And they had no food. There's no food in the desert. And what did God do? God looked after them. God fed them. God provided for them in extraordinary ways. And by doing so, showed them that their survival was not dependent on their abilities, but actually just dependent on him. God fed his people in the desert. And so here in the New Testament, we see echoes of that wilderness experience as Jesus miraculously feeds the crowd, like, like God fed his people in the wilderness. I think that's the big one here. But there's also a little hint. It reminds us a little bit of the promises in Isaiah 25 of the feast at the end of the age, right? At the end, in Isaiah 25, the end of the age is pictured like a big feast where God feeds his people rich food and, and fine wine where he swallows up death forever, right? And wipes away every tear from their eye. Uh, this is not that feast. This is not that feast. But it may be a picture, an anticipation, a foretaste of it at that end time feast when God miraculously feeds his people, just as Jesus fed his people in a desolate place. So, is the Holy Spirit showing us here that Jesus is God who feeds his people like God fed his people in the desert and will feed his people at the end? Is that what he's saying? Well, the next part of our passage will help us to be certain. After the crowd was fed, verse 45, Jesus makes his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side. Right? Maybe they're a bit hesitant. Sounds like maybe they don't want to leave him there by himself. Maybe they want to dismiss the crowd for him because actually that's the job of the rabbi's disciples. Or maybe they're fishermen. They kind of see there might be a storm coming ahead. I don't know why. But whatever the case is, Jesus insists that they go. And he dismisses the crowd himself. And then in verse 46, when he's taken leave of them, he goes up the mountain to pray. 
Right? Many people have pointed out that this is a good example from Jesus, that we should spend time alone with God. And, and yes, this is a good example. Do spend time alone with God like Jesus. Very important. Uh, but there may be more to this than just being a good example for us. At the time of the Exodus, Moses went up to the mountain to meet God. And Jesus here is, is doing the same. And so you wonder, what kind of wonderful revelation is going to come? What wonderful thing is going to happen? Is God going to show himself right, like he did to Moses when he went up on the mountain? Well, the answer actually is yes, but in a way we don't expect. Because Jesus, time alone on the mountain, once again is going to be interrupted. Not because of the crowds, but because of the disciples. So here's the scene. It's, it's evening. Jesus is alone in the land. Disciples are in the boat on the sea. But out on that sea, they're struggling. Verse 48 says that they were making headway painfully, for the wind was against them. Right? Words that indicate they're straining. They're, they're actually in some kind of distress. Last time they were in bad weather, Jesus was in the boat with them, and he calmed the storm with the word. Now he sent them by, by themselves. The wind is against them. They're not getting far. They're rowing hard. They're probably wishing, where's Jesus? Where's Jesus? He sent us out here and now we're in this trouble. But look again how verse 48 starts. Look at it again then. It says, and he saw. And he saw that they were making headway painfully. Jesus was not with them physically, but somehow or other, he sees that they are in trouble. And he cares for them. And so in the middle of verse 48, at about the fourth watch of the night, that's between 3 a.m. and 6 a.m., Jesus comes to them. And notice he doesn't come to them straight away. Notice that he sent them out. He let them struggle a lot first, but never outside his watchful yet invisible eye. And when the time was right, he came to them. Jesus cared for his disciples. And that's a great encouragement for us too, isn't it? Jesus always sees what we are going through. When he sends us out of the world, he watches us. He may seem to delay his actions for us for reasons that he knows and we don't. But we always know that he cares for us. That nothing is outside his loving plans. Sisters and brothers, whatever you're going through, he's got you. So at the right time, Jesus comes to his disciples and in verse 48 again, he, we see that he came to them at about the fourth watch of the night. He came to them walking on the sea. He came walking on the sea. Isn't that amazing? Uh, a few years ago, a Dr. Dora Knopf, a professor of oceanography at Florida State University, suggested that maybe Jesus was walking on ice. Right? Would have been an unusual occurrence of the freezing of the lake. But 
Others have pointed out, actually, it's really impossible. Lah. The boat out there for those hours, battling the rough sea for hours, and someone just walks up to them on the ice. Right? It's not quite makes sense. Much better say that Jesus, this is another miracle. Jesus does so many miracles, right? Here's another miracle. But you wonder why does, why, why does Jesus set this up? Why does he let his disciples struggle and then, and then come walking on the sea? Because he's not someone who does party tricks. That's just not him. This is serious. Why is he doing this amazing miracle? Well, to see the answer to the question, again, we need to go back to the Old Testament. Uh, and on the screen, we'll see a passage from the Old Testament book of Job. Right? Job chapter 9. Uh, listen to what Job, uh, what Job says about God in verse 8. It, he says that he is the one who alone stretched out the heavens and trampled the waves of the sea. Right? Uh, walking on the sea here is used figuratively in Job. Right? But here Jesus brings it into literal reality. He is the one who tramples the waves of the sea. Uh, he is the one like God. Remember Job, this, this is Job describing God. This is his mental picture of God. He, he's, he is wise in heart, mighty in strength. He shakes the earth out of its place, its pillars tremble. He commands the sun, it doesn't rise. He seals up the stars, he stretched out the heavens, he trampled the waves of the sea, he made all these different stars. He does great things beyond searching up, miraculous things beyond number. Right? He is the creator, the ruler of everything ever. That's, that's Job's mental picture of God. And, and Mark and, and indeed the Holy Spirit wants us to add that to our, our mental picture of Jesus. Remember that the, the, the people in Nazareth, they've got a too small a mental picture of Jesus. Right? We're going to see him not just as that man from Nazareth in Galilee, like last week, the carpenter, the son of Mary, the brother of James, and Joseph, and Judas, and Simon, but, but the one who tramples the sea, the creator, the one for whom and by whom all things exist. It's got to blow your mind. There's a bigger picture of Jesus. Uh, and this is further confirmed when we read what Mark says at the end of verse 48. Look at the end of verse 48. He says, he meant to pass by them. He meant to pass by them. What does that mean? Right? Is, was Jesus going to just walk calmly past his struggling disciples? Oh, you know. <laughs> no, 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 no. Come back with me to Job 9 there. All right? And the very next verse, in verse 11, now this is what it says. Behold, he passes by me, and I see him not. He moves on, but I do not perceive him. All right? In Job, you see God is so great. But you can't perceive him, you can't see him, you can't speak to him. But now, now it's different. Because now God is human in the person of Jesus Christ. And he didn't pass them by because, verse 49, they all saw him. The invisible God, the creator who tramples the ways of the sea, is now visible in Jesus Christ. Remember how when Jesus went up the mountain, we wondered, is God going to appear? <laughs> well, oh yes, he did. But not on the mountain, but on the sea, in a way we didn't expect. Of course, the disciples don't understand all this at the time, and so when they see Jesus, they're, they're terrified. And you can't blame them. Lah. It doesn't make sense with someone, for someone with mass to be walking on water. And so they jumped to conclusions in verse 49. But when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost, 
and cried out, for they all saw him and were terrified. It's not a hallucination, they all saw him. And Jesus speaks their fears. Verse 50 continues, but immediately he spoke to them and said, take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. Or something like that. What Jesus actually said is a little bit obscured by our translation. Now, our translation have it this way, and so do most of the English translations, because actually that's the best way of translating the Greek, which is grammatically correct, right? And part of your translation, you've got to be grammatically correct. Like, you can't do like, bad grammar in your Bible, right? But what Mark literally wrote in the Greek is, take heart, I am, do not be afraid. Do not be afraid, I am. Remember in the Old Testament, God had revealed himself as I am. Right? When Moses asked him what's his name, he said, I am whom I am. I tell the people, I am sent you. And Jesus comes to his disciples walking on water, which points to the fact that he is divine. And he says, don't be afraid, I am. So who is Jesus? Is he... John the Baptist, as Herod thought? Is he Elijah who prepares the way for the Lord? No, 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 no. We've seen it over and over and over again. And Mark just wants to make it so clear to us. And just in case we didn't get it from all the hints and all the pictures of the Old Testament, now Jesus confirms it for us in his own words. I am. He is Yahweh, the God of Israel the sovereign Lord, the creator of heaven and earth who has come to his people. Big picture. And, and there's one more thing that at the end just reinforces who Jesus is. Uh, in 651, he, he got, when he got in the boat with them, the wind ceased. The wind ceased. Once again, we see him as the creator. Controlling the wind and the waves is something only God can do. Uh, God is the one who, in Psalm 107, verse 29, makes the storm still and the waves of the sea are hushed. Jesus did this already when he came to the storm in Mark 5, but here he does it again, just after he claims to be I am. And once again, it shows that he really is who he claims to be. But at this point, the disciples still haven't accepted who Jesus really is. And at the end of 51, they are utterly astounded, it says, for they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. If they had understood from the feeding of the 5,000 that yes, Jesus is really God who has come to, to save and feed his people like he did in that wilderness long ago, maybe they wouldn't have been so astounded, lah. Because Jesus is doing what, what God does. But they didn't understand the loaves. They didn't get the significance of the feeding. Their hearts were hardened. And when Jesus claims to be God, and when he does these God things, they're astounded. Well, in the final part of our chapter, they land in a place called Gennesaret, another part of the lake. And they come out of the boat, People recognize Jesus in verse 54. In verse 55, they run 
to bring around the whole region to bring the sick people on their beds to wherever they hear he is at the time. And so wherever he goes in the region, in villages, in towns, in the countryside, people are coming to him. They're begging to touch even the, the edge of his garment because people, are, they find they're getting healed. They just touch him like that. And as I said before, this is a huge contrast into what happened at Nazareth. But when we, now we know that Jesus is God who has come to save and, and feed his people, then that's not a surprise, lah. Huh? Because God has the power to make sick and God has the power to heal. And we know from our previous sermons that the, the physical healings that Jesus performed in the land of Israel are, are pictures, are small pictures of the bigger healing the biggest salvation that he brings through his, through his death on the cross in our place and, and rising again as Lord and King. The people of Gennesaret recognize that Jesus is a great healer and they run to tell the people who need healing to come, 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 come to him. And once we've recognized that Jesus is the God who has come to save and feed his people, then we have an urgency about telling people that they need to come to him. And just like people brought all the sick to him, we bring ourselves and we bring others in faith. And just as Jesus healed all those who came to him, we can be sure that he will save us. He will save us and all who come to him in faith completely from sin and death and hell and make us a part of his new creation where sickness and pain and all the effects of sin are gone forever. At the beginning of this sermon, we noted the different responses Jesus received at the start and the end of Mark 6. Remember the start? Rejection in Nazareth. At the end, massive reception in Gennesaret and surrounding areas. Nazareth, they took offense at him, couldn't do much healing in this town. Gennesaret, many, many, many people completely healed. And so the narrative has moved from unbelief to faith. And between this account of unbelief on the one hand and faith on the other, Mark has actually shown us how we can move from one to the other. What is it, what is it that can drive us from being like the unbelieving people in Nazareth to the believing ones in Gennesaret. Well, it's what's in between, isn't it? On the negative side, we need to be aware of false kings, pretenders to the throne that rightly belongs to Jesus, kings that we can't trust. So the Holy Spirit through Mark tells us about Herod. But there are all kinds of false kings that we can't trust. Money is a useful servant, but a bad king. Because it can't, deliver the security it promises. People will let us down. They really will. Right? No matter who they are, they will let us down. Then no one deserves to be the ultimate king in our life. In fact, not even ourselves. And certainly don't put your trust in political parties and groupings. <laughs> they cannot bring in God's righteous kingdom. There is only one person worthy of our full allegiance. And so on the other side, we, we see who Jesus is. He's the true king. He's the 
compassionate shepherd. God who has come to care for his people. He is Yahweh, the great I am, the creator of heaven and earth, who can save his people from sin and death and hell, and who loves his people with deep, deep compassion. Who knows and cares for the big things, our salvation, our eternal life. Who knows and cares for the small things, our food, our rest, our health. Who knows and cares for our struggles and fears, whether they be at home or at work or at church. Who knows and cares for our anxieties, whether they be about national politics or coronavirus or or something really close to home. He knows when to take action and when not to take action. He may not do what we want. He may not take action when we want. But he will work all things for the good of those who love him. And if he is our king, then our lives, and indeed our eternal security, is very safe in his good and loving hands. And so, my friends, we can move from unbelief to faith when we really see who Jesus is. And today we have. So put your faith firmly today in Jesus, your Savior and your King. Trust Him and Him alone to save you from sin and death and hell through His death on the cross for you. And trust Him to love you and lead you every day of your life, even when you don't know what He's doing. He's the Good Shepherd who truly cares for you. And he will never, never, never let you down. Let's pray. Father, we thank you We thank you that Jesus is your promised king, the the good shepherd who cares for his people. Thank you that we can be those people who come under his loving and compassionate rule. We thank you for the way we've seen his identity as we've looked at your word today. And if anyone here is still in unbelief, anyone who's come to this hall today not sure of who Jesus is, Please move them from unbelief to a place of faith. May each one of us leave this place convinced that he is our God and Savior. And we pray for all of us here who know him as our loving king. May we be people who honor Jesus by our gospel work, and by our trusting rest. May we be people of compassion, who love others and concern for them, following the example of Jesus. Give us confidence, we pray, that whatever happens, he is in control and will carry out his loving plans, even if we don't understand his plan at the time. Please give us the urgency to make him known to the lost who who need to come to him for salvation. And like the people of Gennesaret ran to bring people to to him who, 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 who needed him. Give us that urgency, we pray. 
And may we be people who trust him and love him ourselves in a deeper and deeper way as our lives progress. Until finally we are fed by him in that great feast at the end of the age when you swallow up death forever and wipe all our tears away. We ask this in his name. Amen.